Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. I don't think anyone would ever sum up the plot of Mansfield Park as being how Edmund and Fanny got together, right? That's not that's not what that what that is just <laughs> structurally as a plot, not regardless of even how we feel about that couple. That's not that's not the motivating force behind the novel or or Emma or um you know, I would argue North and Grabby. But uh, for Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion, I think that is. It's the the the, the main beats of the story structure are what what this these two people think about each other and how they're interacting at any given moment. That's that's kind of the arc of the of the plot, which makes and, it really beautiful and really painful. Yeah. <laughs>
is really tightly focalized through her point of view, um, mm -hmm. more so than in any of Austen's other novels except Emma. And of course, Emma uses that PO, plays with POV in a completely different way for different ends. You know, it's 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 comedy and mystery, right? Al allowing the, um, the 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 tension between what's actually happening and what the protagonist thinks is happening. Whereas in Persuasion, she's also you know Austin also late Austin is doing the free indirect discourse thing to the hilt, um, but she's uh, Anne is rarely wrong actually, <laughs> um, and um, and the, uh, the 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 way that that literary technique plays in that story is I think just to create a great sense of emotional depth. I mean I think a lot of readers actually identify with Anne. There you go. You gave us a writerly <laughs> reason. Yeah. You nailed it. It's like it's largely about point of view, and that makes so much mm -hmm. sense. So we get that point of view with Emma, but Emma is not really struggling. Emma's making everybody around her struggle, and well, Anne is struggling. So that that mixture of point of view with us feeling her pain with her, we just become very close to that character. I think so. I think so. Um and um, you know, I I think also that she's there's there's something that's kind of lovely about her maturity as an Austin heroine. Um, she's of course an old maid of twenty seven, so <laughs> a good. Um, it's all too late for her, <laughs> right? as, as is always expressed in there. It's right, too late right. For Anne. Um, but she, um, uh, you know, that that fact and the fact that she she's she has a past. She's not entering onto life for the first time ever gives her a sort of perspective in the way she relates to people that I find very appealing. You know, she, she really, when she, when we see her thinking about or engaging with the other characters, she, she has a kind of tolerance and kindness um, that is sort of, I think, delightful to live with as a reader. You know, she's, um, uh, she sort of envies the Musgrove girls, nothing but their, their, their sisterly affection for each other. She's, she's like, they're fine. She doesn't disparage them for being flighty young teenagers or whatever. Um, I guess Henrietta is 20, Louise is 19, but she, uh, you know, she's, she's happy that they're happy. And also she respects herself and, um, you know, she's, she, she doesn't expect everybody to be the same. Um, she has a broad mindedness that I find really appealing. Yeah, she is very deep. And it's interesting that you say she's happy that they're happy. You really highlight that in this play. Um, mm. That's something that is very, very clear that with all of Anne's longing, longing mm. and loss are just so palpable in this story. Mm. And it really comes across in the play when I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. But then when Henrietta and Louisa both simultaneously a double punch of engagement and happiness, and it's very clear, and you make it very clear in the play that she's happy for them. Yeah. Yes, I mean I think that's in the book too, and of course, with in Louise's case, it's also partly because that's the that's when she learns that Captain Wentworth is single still. Yes, so um, <laughs> so there's a little bit of a reason for her to be. Happy there's there. a little bit of, of self interest there, I suppose. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean I, I think um, I think she's she's good at loving people. You know, mm. she's she's. Um, and that's why, you know, you see the other characters confiding in her, which um, there's that lovely sequence in the 95 film version where all the Musgroves trail in one by one while she's sitting in the chair and sort of, you know, she's sort of acting as their their therapist. <laughs> They're venting to her uh, yeah. about various things. But I, I think that's part of 
too what I find appealing about her as a as a character. She's just she has this really um, not just empathy but compassion for people. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it does come across in the play. I was reminded of it in the play. You've got Mary's tantrum. It's always Anne, 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 uh, which is very funny. There are many times in reading this play that I laugh out loud. Uh, You you. reminded me that this is a funny story as well. It's very funny from the first scene. Sir Walter, everything about Sir Walter and his superficiality is very funny. Yes, well, it is. It's it's interesting that in contrast to... um, you know, some of other, some other Austin's novels, certainly Emma and Pride and Prejudice. Um, the main plot isn't particularly funny. I wouldn't call this a romantic comedy, but it is a comedy and it is very romantic. <laughs> right. <laughs> True, uh, but not a rom-com. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But the, so the, um, you know, the humor uh, mostly comes from the side characters, but I think there's a lot there. Absolutely. And I think that actually my experience at least is that I find Mary and Sir Walter um, even funnier on stage than they are on the page. I think something about seeing those characteristics embodied in actors that I've worked with on, you know, either the folks I'm working with now or different stage readings I've done over the years, um, that it really, uh, that the the humor really pops. Um, Whereas in the, in the context of the novel, because it is sort of a somber tone overall, um, um, you know, sometimes it's just, I don't know. I think some readers might find them tiresome. Well, you know, it's true. There's so much going on. There's so much depth, so much ambiguity and all of these writerly things that you are very good at noticing, spotting, talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stage just brings it down to that dialogue. Uh, and so much of the dialogue does, as you say, pop. Can mm-hmm. What do you know, Rose, about how Jane Austen felt about the theater. I know she attended the theater. I feel like she adapted one play. And I will just throw in there that Dickens, novel writing was Dickens' plan B, right? He uh-huh. wanted to do theater. And I think people forget that. He, uh-huh. he, nobody would be more approving of putting all of his books on the stage. Um, but I, I feel like Austen, she read the books out loud to her family. She she liked them to work out loud, didn't they? Didn't she? I she did. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the whole um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the whole Mansfield Park episode. Yes. I think that there's a lot of evidence that she did very much love the theater. Um. Uh. There are two excellent books on that subject. Um. Uh, Paula Byrne wrote a book called Jane Austen and the Theater, which has recently been re-released as The Genius of Jane Austen, and it's sort of um, looking at Austen in the context of 18th century drama. And then there's another book, which is also called Jane Austen and the Theater by Margaret Gay. And I read both of those as I was uh, working on the early drafts of this piece. But she does it, it the way her the way her stories move is often very theatrical. She 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 does it. She includes a lot of she includes scenes, you know, she includes entrances and exits. Persuasion has two big eavesdropping scenes, which is very theatrical, I think, as as we know from saying much ado about nothing. Um, Yeah, you're so uh, right. There's a lot. Yeah, there's, there's a lot that in Austin, I think that just does naturally lend itself to the theater, the theater. Hmm. But then also, there's all, you know, there's a lot, I think, especially in her, her last two completed works. Um, that is quite difficult to get across on stage. And I, I mean, or maybe impossible, you know, maybe it's just a completely different animal when you're putting it on stage, Emma or Persuasion, because so much of the delight of reading those two novels is the the free and direct discourse, the, the mm-hmm. point of view. 
you, let me pick on up on something that you just said, Rose, that is fascinating just to me, uh, may, hopefully to everybody else too, but the eavesdropping. So yeah. much ado about nothing and that eavesdropping scene is hilarious and it's one of the most enjoyable scenes in mm-hmm. Shakespeare. But the eavesdropping that Jane Austen puts into persuasion is really painful on both occasions. <laughs> it's just yes, excruciating. It's just- I yeah. just, my heart was just dropping. It was it's, yeah. it's just today reading the play. It's just mm-hmm. very sad the eavesdropping so I guess you know what do you think of that and um, Jane Austen's you know you've read these books on the theater I haven't really looked into this is she very influenced by Shakespeare is that obvious (laughs) Um, I I think that many smart people who know more about the subject than I do would say yes Um, (laughs) I'm not prepared to count the ways in which she's influenced by Shakespeare but yes and also um, uh, you know just 18th century stage comedies um, I think um uh and of course we know that she put on plays with her family when she was little they were when, mostly her older siblings i suppose were involved but you know she was there so you mentioned something about mansfield park um mm-hmm. it does come across in the play as well that Anne Elliot is popular. So that's a kind of a detail that you've managed to get into the play. It's that very she- clear that that uh that everybody wants to be around and oh yeah yeah um but i do find that that comes out in mansfield park as well uh, you're just reminding me that something that i it's probably discussed i don't see, hear it discussed very much but to me there's a turning point in mansfield park when everyone's doing their theater production mm-hmm. and they all come to fanny price and complain yes that's right yes and that's it right. seems to me like that, that that's where her power starts taking hold i have this pet theory that Fanny Price starts out very mousy and at the bottom and Mm -hmm. that the whole story of Mansfield Park is her gradually ascending to where she's Mm -hmm. really at the Mm -hmm. top Mm -hmm. Um, and I it's just if you want to the blocking (laughs) it's like it's almost just a direct line up for Fanny Price and to me it's really becomes evident and I don't know, it seems like Jane Austen, you, you said something that I think is profound, Rose, already, which is that she, it's about how to love and she teaches us how to love. She teaches us how to make people love us. It's a matter of survival in a way. And I, I feel like we see that over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, um, Anne Elliot doesn't need to work quite as hard to survive as Fanny Price does, although she's also the sort of Cinderella figure in her own family. Um mm. But uh, yeah, that's it. That's interesting. Of course, there's that wonderful scene in Mansfield Park where both Mary and uh, Edmund come to visit Fanny for <laughs> to to practice with her because she's less intimidating than their other yeah. scene partner. And then and then she helps Mr. Rushworth. And there's all sorts of indications. I think you're right in that section that despite her, um, you know, her famously uh, steadfast refusal to act, that that is kind of a, a, a pivotal point in her her sort of coming coming out into coming out of her shell coming out into the world being being recognized and appreciated that's interesting okay let's talk about romance <laughs> so this is another thing that you mm-hmm. have to bring onto the stage and wentworth appears very early uh, which yeah. is very romantic maybe scene 2 and and 
Why is that? And how do you get the romance to translate onto the stage? What's that like? Uh Oh, that's a great question. Well, so my my first draft. So um, I I don't I don't think it's a spoiler. I'll I'll, I'll let your listeners in. On it's in scene two. So <laughs> there there is um there's a there's a short uh, flashback uh, scene that portrays Anne and Wentworth's courtship in 1806, um, and that was not in my very first draft of the play. I inserted it, um, you know, after sharing the pages with a couple of friends who who had not read the novel and I don't I, I think they they were really missing something they needed they needed a chance to connect with Wentworth earlier in the play than when he appears um in 1814 um and and a chance to kind of um you know believe in him as a as a lovable character and somebody who would be good for Anne um because of course in the novel in the novel, the, the 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 backstory is summarized pretty pretty quickly by the narrator. Um, but once we get Captain Wentworth on stage, so to speak, in the novel, um, everything is focalized through Anne's perspective, and Anne adores him. So we see we see him with this sort of loving lens. Um, but in a play, you don't have that in a dramatization. So I I really felt that it was necessary to indicate somehow early on um, that they have this kind of profound connection. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I thought, you know, just reading the story mm -hmm. as you've adapted it, it made a lot of sense. It was just nice to see that. It raises the stakes, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. I, well, so that's that's the other thing is that the relationship, the central relationship in this play, unlike Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, they don't talk to each other very much. And when they do, they don't say what they mean until the very end. So there has to be something for the audience to have that the audience has and this is partly staging and acting um but i think it has to be in there in the text a little bit too that um sets up this tension between the two characters let me ask you rose about other elements that you have in this script which are the audio because as an audio person i feel like uh, you know when i go to the theater and i love theater um, that sometimes the the audio seems to be second thought, but you seem to have really thought about the audio. And one thing that I just love and can't wait to hear is that you have this theme of waves. Um, and sometimes waves, the sound of waves are, is overwhelming yes. the dialogue. And this happens in the Wentworth letter, which I think is going to, it could be very cool. Can you talk a little bit about the sound and the audio? Um, yeah, I was interested in thinking about... Um, ways to convey, as I said, to convey Anne's inner experience um, when, you know, she's she's a pretty buttoned up person within a pretty buttoned up culture, right? And um, for most of the story, she doesn't have a confidant. She doesn't have anybody to, to tell, oh, this is what I'm feeling. <laughs> this is what I'm feeling today. Um, so, um, so thinking about kind of um, more symbolic or um, uh, you know, just non non-linear or or non-literal um, ways of of kind of sharing her perspective with the audience was something that I've played with, including the wave sounds. There's also a fair bit of music written into the script. Yes, I wanted um, to ask you about that. Yeah, it's not a musical, but um, uh, you know, I, I chose some period songs for the transitions, uh, having having kind of a you know moody Beethoven underscoring for some of Anne's private moments, I think is, is part of it. Um, there are a couple of folk songs that make an appearance in the, in the play um, that are real songs from the period. Uh, the, the Beethoven Sonata number 26 is one that I, I think it was published in England in 
want to say 1812. Um, so, you know, it's, it's before the, technically before the romantic era in classical music, but Beethoven was this transitional figure. I think Anne would be into him. Um, <laughs> Anne would be into Beethoven. I think that that's a good assumption. Yes. Yeah. Let's say yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but one of the songs which I was really delighted to come across is called The Saucy Sailor. And um, indeed, it is this narrative ballad that is, it's almost like a cartoon version of the story of, of Anne and Frederick Wentworth. The lyrics contain two characters' voices speaking in different verses. You know, this, the sailor says, will you marry me? And the girl says, no, you, you, you're, you're dirty. You've just returned from sea. And then um, he says, well, I've got lots of money. And she says, oh, okay. And he's, he says, nope, never mind. I'm, I'm not going to wed a poor country girl when there are fortunes to be had. Come me on one, come me fair one, come now unto me. Good fancy, a poor sailor lad who has just come from sea. You are ragged love and your dirty love and your clothes smell much of tar. So be gone, you saucy sailor lad, so be gone, you jackdaw. If I am ragged love and I'm dirty love and me clothes smell much of tar, So in my play, you know, the Musgroves just sort of spontaneously start singing this at a, you know, afternoon gathering. And uh, it's like incredibly embarrassing for the two central characters, but they can't say anything. Um, yeah. Which is so along the lines of what Jane Austen does, as we were <laughs> saying several times in Persuasion, which is have the Musgrove sisters or some happy-go-lucky people just spout out some nonsense that happens to be extremely painful to yeah. Anne and yeah. potentially Wentworth. Right, yeah, there's, um, there's, there's quite a lot of that in, um, uh, in the play, especially. What a great use of the music. That sounds wonderful. Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane, and I spoke with Sarah Rose Kearns, whose stage adaptation of Jane Austen's deep, soulful story, Persuasion, is playing off-Broadway through October. We've been talking about the music included in the stage play Kearns wrote, including the saucy sailor, which we're hearing right now. It's a version by the Whalen Jennies. And in this next part of the conversation, Sarah Rose Kearns and I talked about the themes of Jane Austen that come out strong in persuasion, such as the feeling of displacement, the quest for a home. Let's get back to the conversation with Sarah Rose Kearns. I think a lot of our ideas about um, the kind of manners of um, Austin's era are, are filtered through the later 19th century and are not entirely accurate, right? I, I mean, it was, um, obviously, the dancing in this period was extremely energetic, right? People, including the rich, fancy people, were hopping around. <laughs> there was a sort of, uh, in this period, as, as I'm sure you're aware, more more sort of less um, less cultural in Britain at this at this period, in Austin's period, less restriction or regulation of 
the sexuality of middle class women than there was subsequently in the 19th century, right? So the folk song I described isn't particularly body, but it's you know it's 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 certainly flirt a flirtatious choice on the part of the Musgrove girls singing it for Captain Wentworth. There's this lovely conduct book from 1811 called The Mirror of the Graces. Have you encountered that? No, tell us um, more. It's uh well, so it's an actual book. It, it's anonymous. It was it's written in the sort of persona of a society matron who's you know giving advice to her friends children who live in the country um and and you know how to be a proper young lady and so forth and so this is 1811 one of the things she says is that if you're going to sing highly romantic body or whatever songs at least in mixed company uh young ladies when you're you know exhibiting your accomplishments as jane austen heroines do um at least try to keep a neutral facial expression so that people don't think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not that you can't sing about <laughs> about love and so forth. It's just that you you shouldn't try to get into character too much. But of course, the fact that she's saying that indicates that people did, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, That's um, very interesting. Yes, it go, that, goes along with a lot of what we know about that time, don't we? That Jane yes. Austen was kind of trying to trying to fight against in a way uh, that you know it's better to be ignorant and elegant <laughs> and she's all about the opposite of that right just like yeah. authenticity and being smart and astute yeah. yes. and authentic and not ignorant and fashionable and elegant right yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's interesting so so yeah you're you're saying the music and the manners and a lot in uh, that early 19th century and regency era and around it was more robust I think that's an excellent word choice. Yeah, than than um, um, than what we might be accustomed to um, to to thinking from I don't know from film or just from you know um, viewing it sort of through a Victorian lens. Your play brings out some of the complicated themes that are some of our I think favorite themes from Austen, but things that are not necessarily you know, in light of what we were just saying, associated with Austin. So themes about class and mm -hmm. displacement and the superficiality versus substance theme. And also in persuasion, there's that influence theme, over influence mm -hmm. and all of the things that um, can kind of influence your life that shouldn't necessarily be influencing your life when it comes to status um, mm -hmm. and class. Um, what have your what are your favorite themes from Austin and also from Persuasion? And what are the challenges of getting the, some of these complicated themes onto a brief stage story? I'm, I think I'm, I'm of the school of thought, which, um, you know, has been, has been explored beautifully by Jocelyn Harris in her book, A Revolution Almost Beyond Expression, this lovely, um, you know, standalone work of academic criticism of persuasion only as opposed to Austin in general. Um, that this this work does um, to a degree, to the degree that it was possible for Austin celebrate um, uh, meritocracy and social mobility and valuing people on um, in terms of character and and not so much other stuff. There's no Pemberley in this in this story, right? Um, we don't even find out where Anne and Captain Wentworth are going to live. Um, it's not that important. The important thing mm. is that we're together, right? Anne has this thought in the book um, that the Crofts are are doing a better job of being the 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 the, the great folks of Kellynch um, than her father was. That they deserve to be there in this in this fancy house and you know 
having all these sort of social responsibilities uh, and that that her family does not, even though that's their hereditary right. Uh, I think I think all that is quite interesting. It is also, of course, a romance. I think it's the most romantic of Austen's novels. When people characterize Austen as a romance writer, of course, I bristle. But of course, also, there's nothing wrong with being a romance writer. I think it's generally an inaccurate um, characterization, um, except maybe in this work, right? Um, I mean, she really has just two novels that trace a heterosexual couple's journey to matrimony from beginning to end, Pride and Prejudice and and this, right? The um, I don't think anyone would ever sum up the plot of Mansfield Park as being how Edmund and Fanny got together, right? That's not that's not what that what that is just. <laughs> Structurally, as a plot, not regardless of even how we feel about that couple, that's not that's not the motivating force behind the novel or or Emma or um, you know I would argue North and Grabby, but uh, for Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion, I think that is it's the 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 main beats of the story structure are what what this these two people think about each other and how they're interacting at any given moment. That's that's kind of the arc of the of the plot. Which makes and, it really beautiful and really painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then especially because persuasion, um, in comparison with Pride and Prejudice, is is so much more. Uh, Austin in this book is is so much less suspicious of emotion. It seems. I mean, mm-hmm. she still she still you know she she still she still plays both sides, sort of the the pra- practicality and um, um, community and versus kind of um, individual feelings and desires and and you know she 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 does try to find a balance between these sort of different motives that people might have for marrying but this one is certainly a celebration of romantic love in the end right yes Um, and um, she's starting to she was starting to let it all hang out in a way she was going very very deep you know and it's uh just tragic that we don't see where we won't get to see where she was going Mm -hmm. yeah that's right well and also of course um uh, this is the most romantic with a capital R as well, right? It, it just in terms mm. of the way she writes about nature, the way she invokes um, Byron and Scott, and um, you know that that there's this several paragraphs of just description of Lyme Regis and the beautiful surrounding country that you don't have in any other place in Austin that I can think of. It is kind of unabashed, or or there, there's less ironic distance um, here mm. than we see elsewhere in her work. Um, yes. Yes. Um, interesting. Uh, you also just described all the different places, and uh, you're reminding me of a, a really funny, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across this talk, that Andrew Davies, he's the one who does all the adaptations. Yes. Right? Yes, so yes, many of them. Um, he, I don't think I've heard, his, heard this, the, what you're speaking about. He, there's a there's something on YouTube of him talking to Chapman University. I think you would really enjoy it. It's very funny. He's very funny. Mm-hmm. He's very casual. He has a really good time. He he just speaking of letting it all hang out. He just kind of mm-hmm. talks about at this point. What does he? You know, he doesn't have anything to prove. 1995 Pride and right. Prejudice will just always stand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's out there for the world. Uh, and he he kind of de- deconstructs uh, writing that. He says he loved writing the first three scenes of Pride and Prejudice in 1995, and they just flew by. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and this reminds me uh, of, of what you're dealing with. 
He said, then everyone went all over the country and just started writing letters to each other. Right. <laughs> just like, right. what do you do with that? Um, anyway, I think, uh, it, you know, in your stage adaptation, it looks like you've gotten very creative with the letters and what you can do. But it just struck me that uh, it seems like almost every story <laughs> in mm -hmm. Jane Austen starts out with everybody in a room and then everyone flees and writes yeah. letters. Yeah, that's it. That is interesting. Um, yeah, and often just um, people, people, men especially, love interests um, sort of disappearing for for no known reason. Mm. Right? Is a, is sort of a big thing. There's the you know in, mm. in Pride and Prejudice and in Sense and Sensibility as well. Yes. Like that waiting oh, for them. What, what happened? He's he was here mm. and everything seemed fine, and now he's gone, and I have no idea, and I'm not going to find out until the very end of the story. It's terrible. Yes, that powerlessness, mm -hmm. um, and then also displacement. And I, I guess really mm -hmm. one thing that's going on that you are really really seeing in your adaptation, and that is also going on really always in Jane Austen is displacement. I didn't remember that it was going on in Persuasion, but there's so much displacement and it's uh, so painful. And I, and I suppose mirrors Jane Austen's life, which was in a parsonage, uh, comfortable right. for years and years and years until it wasn't. And uh, you have a line, I don't know if it's directly from Austen, but where um, Lady Russell at a really crucial moment says to Anne, your home is where your father's house is, yeah. something like that. And it's yeah. it's just kind of a gut punch. Yeah, it, it, well, it is. It is. I mean, I mean, that's the, the central thing um, in 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 many, if not most, if not all of Austen's novels, the 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 quest for a stable home. Right. Women mm -hmm. in this milieu, yes. um, her 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 you know, subculture that she's writing about um, cannot live alone unless maybe they're widows like Lady Russell um, and wealthy, of course, um, and and um, cannot inherit um, houses. And, um, you know, they're just they, they, they're depend they're they're depend it they're dependent on either their their father or husband or maybe a brother, as in Jane Austen's case, to Put a roof over their head and um they're sort of obliged to go wherever they're wanted and i think um that line is not in the book um but i think it i i put it in um because it really does i i i think i hope um help to emphasize what anne is giving up when she decides she doesn't want to marry mr elliot there is there there is this theme that right she it would be so nice for her in so many ways in in the book as yes. well as in the play to marry Mr. Elliot and to stay in this community that she's been attached to her whole life and then she sort of bravely chooses not to do that even though she doesn't know there's a better alternative on the horizon at that point which is why you know you don't want to you Rose don't necessarily love hearing that Jane Austen is a romance writer because I feel like there's there it's one of my favorite themes too, this displacement, mm -hmm. this search for a home, um, the way it's tied into marriage in Jane Austen and how the stakes are so high for marriage and how mm -hmm. she's so great at depicting this loss and I would say endurance um, mm -hmm. that that she herself was always going through. And yeah. uh, it's it's one of my favorite themes because I think that it helps people understand what they, they don't see. I think that people think of Jane Austen as the opposite of that. They think mm -hmm. of Jane Austen as all about country, great houses and uh, manners. And it's actually 
uh, that's the outside. And then on the inside, there's loss and confusion and displacement and mm-hmm. insult and mm-hmm. in- even injury, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. sometimes danger, you know. Especially um, for is, the women, I'm, which is which are the people she focuses on within this little world. Thank yeah. you. Yes, for the women, <laughs> mostly. Thank you again for okay. all of your time. Good luck and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, yes, we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Bye, Bye. guys. Good night. Good night. Do you think that I am foolish? Do you think that I am mad? For to bed with a poor country girl where no fortunes can be had. I will cross the bright. That was Sarah Rose Kearns talking with us here at the Austin Connection about the story of persuasion and her play based on the novel. An off-Broadway production is staging Sarah Rose Kern's Persuasion right now and through October at the theater company Bedlam. You can find out more at the austinconnection.substack.com. That's austinconnection.substack.com. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you there.